Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. Thank you. It is a beautiful name that we're here to celebrate and worship this morning. Amen. I am honored and grateful to be here. And uh, before I ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning, I want to say something about your pastor. I really love and appreciate your pastor and his wife as well. Uh, not only is Brother Wally involved in the things in the association in leadership, but he also is a servant at our association. And uh, you may or may not be aware that uh, twice a month, I believe it is, on Tuesday mornings, he teaches a Bible study to Caring Place clients, to people that come to the Caring Place, most of whom do not have a church, do not attend a church. And he goes and gives of his time and teaches a Bible study to them. And I get to go occasionally, and I can tell you they're getting solid Bible teaching just like you get here every Sunday. And I'm grateful for that. So I appreciate you too, Brother Wally. Thank you for letting me be here. I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. The Old Testament book of 2 Kings. And I want you to think about this. I hope that when you go out of here today, that you will say, I know something good, and I want to make it my task to tell somebody. I want to go and I want to tell somebody what I know how God has blessed me. You know, this season is not only the Christmas season that we celebrate and makes us think about the birth of our Savior and, and all that goes with that and family and all of, all of that, but this is also the season that has been chosen when we promote our Lottie Moon Christmas offering the month of December. And I so appreciate seeing you come up as a church family to give uh, a, birth, uh, a birthday gift to Jesus. And really what you're doing is you're giving a birthday gift to Jesus, but you're giving a gift also to the nations. And you're helping to see that the, the gospel is taken to the uttermost parts of the earth, which is what Christ told us to do, what he sent us to do. And so always in this season, it's, it's a mixed feeling for me because as we sit in our luxurious surroundings, let's admit it, we, we are wealthy beyond, beyond measure we are blessed beyond measure uh, physically and financially and in many other ways spiritually because we have a church that we can come, a church family that can, we can meet with. But I'm always uh, drawn to those that I know are overseas who do not have the opportunity to come and sit in a worship service like we are in today or who do not have the opportunity to have, to have heard maybe many, uh, hundreds of times rather the gospel explained in their own language in a way that they can understand it. And so I was thinking about that when Brother Wally invited me to come and speak, and I remembered this passage that, I, uh, that we've, you've probably read too in 2 Kings when it talks about a, a terrible time in the history of Israel, a terrible time of, of famine and, and suffering, a time when, when people did not know where their, meal was, their next meal was coming from, and yet it turned out to be a time of blessing. And, and we're going to read in just a moment from 2 Kings chapter 7. We're going to read about the response that four lepers gave to some good news that they discovered. They, they, they said, we cannot sit here, but we must go and tell somebody. But we're going to begin reading in just a moment in, in chapter 7. But I, let me just sort of bring us up to speed into where, we, where we're going to pick up. You can go back and read this uh, at home. I don't have time to read it today together. But in, in, in chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, we, under, we read about a siege that has taken place. That uh, Israel is under siege by the, by the Syrians. 
And they've been under siege. They're in the, in the walled city, and they can't get out. They can't, they can't go out to get supplies. And so people are starving, literally. And it, it says there in chapter 6 that, that things had gotten so bad that a donkey's head, now I've never wanted a donkey's head, but if you wanted to buy a donkey's head, that it was such a delicacy and so expensive that it cost the equivalent of about $500 in our money today. Now, just a few chapters back, in, in better days, you could buy a whole horse for about twice that much money in, in that same area. And so, so they, they were desperate with nothing to eat. There, there is, in that passage in chapter 6, there is a terrible account of the king walking on the wall of the city, and a mother comes to him asking him for her help. And what she wants him to do is take, help her to take vengeance on her neighbor. Guess why? Because they had been starving, and she and her her neighbor had agreed that, that yesterday they would kill and eat her baby. Can you imagine that? On the promise that today we'll eat the other lady's baby. And the woman says, King, I gave my baby yesterday, two days ago, and we ate my baby. And now my friend refuses to give. And he, it says that he rent his clothes. And he said, what can I do? So that is the desperate situation that we're about to pick up here as we read about and read from chapter 7. So I want to ask you to join me in reading, beginning in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come and let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. And as they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. And so they had said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Verse 7, Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys. And they fled for their lives. Now, look at verse 8. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. And we remain silent. If we wait until morning, until the morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come and let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. 
I want you to consider with me this morning three things. First of all, I want us to consider together the life of the lost. What's it like to be lost? Second, I want us to think about what is the hope of the hungry. And finally, I want us to think about, before we leave this morning, what is the responsibility of the redeemed? You see, we have a story here of a siege, of a famine, of a terrible time in the nation of Israel. But worse than that, we have a story of four very unfortunate young men. These men were lepers. And I don't know if you've ever met a leper, ever seen a leper, but I have seen lepers overseas. And I, I'm not a doctor. I don't understand the, the, the disease of leprosy. I, I know it's called Hansen's disease, and I know that there are various degrees in which it can affect people. But I have been with people in Africa who had no hands because their fingers had fallen off as a result of leprosy. I have walked on the outside of a temple along, when along the wall beggars were sitting in rows by the dozens, lepers begging, holding a cup, some with, with only nubs to, to hang the cup on their wrists. Others who had no nose, only a hole where their nose had been, no ears. I have seen what this disease can do to somebody. And as I think about that, I, I know that, that we're talking about real lepers here, but I want us to think about the symbolism that is there and how, and how that, that does parallel in many issues what it's like to be lost. And I want to explain what I mean. I want you to look, at, uh, look with me and think about the outward signs of these four lepers in purity. They had outward signs. You see, being lost is like being a leper in that you really, in the end, you cannot hide it. You can pretend. You can, you can, you can cover up and, and you, can, you can fool some of the people some of the time and all the, pe all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. You just can't cover it up. And, and it was even codified in Old Testament law, the law of the leper, that they had to not only not pretend, but they had to announce to the world their leprosy. And you know, in spite of our best uh, try sometimes, when we're lost, we announce to the world this situation of our, of our heart, don't we? I remember a long time ago, I think I was in seminary, and I came across a vile person. I think it was at the rescue mission in Memphis, if I remember correctly. And this person was just, was just vile in his language, in his attitude, in, in his... In his uh, personality everything was vile about this person and I complained to one of my seminary buddies and I said how can that man how can anybody be that mean how can someone hate God so much that they act that way and I was sort of on my high horse so to speak and my friend looked at me and he says well Ken he's lost he's acting like lost people act how did you act when you were lost I said, well, I didn't, I didn't act that bad. He said, well, maybe you covered it up better than he did. And so, so it, the law of the leper was this. We won't, we won't, I won't let you go back and read it, but let me just read it to you, and you can make a note and read it later. In Leviticus chapter 13, we read this. The leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean all the days he has the sore he shall be unclean 
He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You see, the life of the lost means that you walk around every day exhibiting outward signs of the impurity of your heart. And you're, you're not only ceremonially unclean like these lepers were, but you are spiritually unclean because your heart has not been covered by the blood of Jesus. But you have to exhibit it. Everybody knows a leper is a leper. They go around in torn outfits and torn clothing. They have unkempt hair. They have to cover their upper lip, and they ha even have to announce their coming unclean, unclean. And so everybody knows what it's like. Or what, when they see a leper. Think about a lost person. How, how self-conscious they must feel. We wonder why it's hard to get lost people to come to church. Well, it's because they feel awkward, I, I think, in large part. It's because they know or they think that everybody's going to be looking at me. They're going to see my, my, my outward signs of impurity. And they feel like they can't pretend, whereas in the world they can they can just get by somehow. So, so that's, that's the outward sign of their impurity. But I want us to think about deeper. Think about the inward symptoms of the suffering that they're going through. Think about the loneliness that they must have. The loneliness of a leper. They had to stay about 150 feet away from people that were not lepers. They had to maintain a distance. They had to live outside the camp out there where the garbage was. You see, from society's perspective, that's the way they were considered. And so they suffered from loneliness. Have you ever thought about that when you're a leper, pretty much all your friends are lepers too? And they didn't have an opportunity to, to meet the, the, the fancy crowd, to meet the up-and-comers, to meet the beautiful people. And so they lived a life of humiliation. Can you imagine walking around yelling, unclean, unclean, you and your fellow lepers, and other people seeing and hearing you and turning and going the other way? You see a parallel? There are people living around this world who don't know exactly why, but they know that, that inside they feel unclean. There's something missing from their life. They feel the loneliness that you and I once felt. It may be a morbid exercise, but I, I often say to myself at least, Ken, don't forget what it's like to be lost. Don't forget what it felt like before you knew the Lord. If you get too uppity, remember that you were once where all these other people that maybe you tend to look down upon are at right now. And you're where you are now, not because of anything you have done, but because Jesus gave his life on the cross for you. The symptoms of their inward suffering, they had a destitute life. You're not able to work in any meaningful way when you're a leper. You're not able to accomplish much. You're an outcast from society. You live what most people would consider a meaningless existence. You're just sort of going through the motions. And in effect, you're just waiting to die. I, I've been feeling a little under the weather this week. And so I've been watching a lot of YouTubes when, between my sleeps. <laughs> I imagine Brother Wally can identify with that uh, watching, uh, reading, or doing something between the times you're sleeping. And I've been, I've, for some reason, I've watched several testimonies of former uh, uh, sufferers from the, the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And I watched one just yesterday about a lady who said that, that, uh, that she was in the woman's camp 
and they were starving. And she said, you know, you know, we think that we've been hungry. Any, anybody here ever been hungry? I've been hungry for maybe, what, 12 hours? Maybe 24 hours? But what about 12 days? What about when, when you're getting a minimal sustenance for days and weeks on end? She said the pain literally gnaws at you, that you feel the hunger, and you, and you can actually feel your body at the end devouring itself. And she said, we were in that case, and she said one of the German women commandants, the keepers of the prison, walked by eating an apple in front of all of us. And when she finished, she threw the apple core to us like a pack of dogs. And she said, we all fought each other and clamored over each other trying to get the apple core. That's what it means to be demeaned. And that's what it's like to be hungry. It says in, uh, in verse 4, it says, If we say, the leper said, If we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there, die of hunger. And if we sit here, we will, will die also. Now, therefore, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, and I think this is a key statement, we shall only die. You know, you can get to the place, I'm told, where that you feel that there is a fate worse than death. And I'll tell you, I, would, I think I would feel that way if, I, if, if there was no such thing as Jesus, wouldn't you? If I didn't have the hope of Jesus Christ and of his coming, not only of his first coming of his birth, which, praise the Lord, we, we have that, that's a fact, but now we have a hope of his second coming. And so the hope of the hungry is that they will receive food and sustenance, that, that their physical deprivation will somehow end. You see, when you become hungry, the first thing that you experience is a physical lack. And I, and I read up on that, and I found an article from Time Magazine from 1992. And, and I know this is a little morbid, but we're going to get to the, to, the, to the nicer stuff in a moment. But listen to how they describe hunger here. The first mild stage of starvation begins within hours after food intake stops. Probably all of us have experienced this before we break the fast. The body quickly burns through its reserves of sugars in the blood and starches stored in the liver and muscles. It then begins raiding fat deposits for triglycerides, compounds that can be broken down into fatty acids that the body can use for fuel. After days or weeks, depending on how meager the rations, these raids result in a condition known as marasmus. Without fat to support it, the skin begins to lose elasticity and to sag. Loss of fat around the eyes gives them a sunken look, and the face starts to wrinkle in what starvation experts call the old man syndrome. As starvation advances, the body tries to conserve energy by limiting all but the most vital processes. Cell division slows drastically. Even hairs stop growing. Reduced fuel burning drives body temperature down. That combined with the loss of insulating fat can lead to death from hypothermia. The shutting down of the intestines can lead to the paradox of death by diarrhea. Reduced production of white blood cells weakens the immune system, a kind of starvation-induced AIDS that turns diseases like measles into killers. Eventually, the body 
begins burning muscle tissue wholesale. Victims become too weak even to move, and the heart muscle begins to shrink. By then, death is almost inevitable. I know that's rough stuff, but I want us to feel what these lepers felt. I want you to try to imagine, as hard as that is for us in this day and time, in this place, to put ourselves in the place of four lepers. Not only were they, not, were they starving in the wall, inside the wall where the regular people were, they were starving outside the wall. If, if manna from heaven had fallen in the city, they would have been the last people to partake of it. And so they had no hope. They were hungry, but they had no hope. Now, I've been hungry, as I said, but you know what? I've always got a hope of another meal coming, right? But what if you were hungry and had no hope, did not know where your next meal might come from, did not know if there would be another meal? They felt their physical lack, their physical need. But not only that, the life of a leper is like the life of a lost person because there was a spiritual depravity involved. When you get to the place where you will fight over an apple core, not only have you lost your health, but you've lost your humanity. You've lost that very thing that makes you different from those in the animal kingdom. Someone said that people who can barely stand on their feet rarely care about standing by their scruples. Isn't that true? And so these lepers had come to the proverbial end of the rope. We know that, that the New Testament teaches that there is more to life than bread and water. They probably thought at that moment that all I need is some bread and maybe some water and life will be just wonderful. You can get that hungry. But the Bible says that Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, that he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The lost need not just physical nourishment, but they need spiritual nourishment. And they need somebody to come and to tell them that there is hope, that what they're hungering for, even though they can't identify it, what they're hungering for, who they're hungering for, is none other than the Lord Jesus. Think about the life of the lost, what it's like to be lost. It's a terrible, tragic thing. Think about the hope of the hungry, but now here's the good part. Let's also finally consider the responsibility of the redeemed. Folks, that's you and me. We are the redeemed. And as the redeemed, we not only have the blessing of being fed every day from our Bible. You realize that's not a privilege that, ex that exists everywhere in the world either. Well, Allison was reading to me this morning a message from some of our former colleagues in China that, that this year, for the first time in their memory, they were there when we got to China, and they're still there. In their memory, this is the first time that there is no mention of Christmas in, in the city that we lived in together with them. There was no spiritual recognition of Christmas when we were there, but, but every store you went in, they were, they were playing oftentimes Christmas songs in English that we recognize even occasionally we would hear a Christian song played over the loudspeakers in English because they didn't recognize the words. 
There were Christmas trees everywhere. There were angels, uh, or rather snowmen and snow and, and, and all of the things that we use, the visuals that we use. But our friends say that, that this year, you don't see that in the city. And our friend is a medical doctor. He says, but at our clinic, we're still playing Christmas music. And at our clinic, we have a Christmas tree with presents under it that we use as illustrations of the gift that was given to mankind when Jesus came. And so we need to pray for, for those missionaries who live in China who are facing things that Allison and I and our family never had to face in China because we were able to freely talk about Christmas. One of the last things we did before we left, we came back to the United States in 2016 after about 10 years in China. And uh, that Christmas, we had a Christmas party. We came in January of 2016. That Christmas, we had a Christmas party for some college students that we had been witnessing to and teaching English at one of the local universities. And I don't remember how many it was, probably between 15 and 20, a mixed group, boys and girls. And, and we had our tree there, and we, had, we knew we had to get rid of everything, so we just wrapped up a lot of stuff that we were going to give away to other people, and we had a, a gift for every student who came to that, to that place. And we drew numbers as to who would get the gifts. And these were little small things. These were little trinkets that we had around the house. And, but one thing we had that was a, was a gift was a large, a very large, I mean, this is a giant print Bible, but probably two or three times as heavy as this Bible, a large Chinese-English uh, Bible side by side, really about this thick. It was too big for us to bring home. We had other Bibles. We didn't have room to bring that home. And so we decided to wrap that Bible up. And as I said, we, the, the students drew numbers for the Bible. Well, a lot of these students had Bibles. Not all of them, but some of them had Bibles. But there was one who not only didn't have a Bible and who had never had a Bible. None of these students, however, had English Bibles, and these were English students. So they all wanted to have this special Bible that had not only the Mandarin Chinese written, but also had English beside it so they could compare and not only study the Word of God, but also study English at the same time. And so one girl drew the number, and she won the Bible, and, and oh, she was so excited. But there was another girl there who was so let down because she didn't have a Bible. Guess what? The girl who drew the number for the Bible gave the Bible to the other girl so that she had not only a Chinese Bible, but she has an English Bible. And I don't know if she's big enough to carry it, but she does have an English Bible that she can read in both Chinese and in English. And, and those are the kinds of people that we need to make sure receive the Word of God. First of all, what are we responsible for? Well, I thought about that, and, and I think that's something between all of us and the Lord God. But, the, but we do know that to whom much is given, much is required. But I would say that, that we all, at least that I feel, responsible for what we have. God has blessed us in America financially. And, and I think it is a responsible thing for us to give as families to Lottie Moon so that the Word of God can go to places where they don't have the Word of God. I think we need to be responsible for what we have. Not only at Lottie Moon time, but all through the year, we need to give, and we need to give so that others can hear the gospel that we have so graciously received. I think we're not only responsible for what we have, but I also think we are responsible for what we know. 
Uh, it is amazing. Uh, this morning uh, before church began, Brother Wally uh, let my family and, and I go in with him into his office and just to see the books on his bookshelf. Many of you have lots of Christian books at home. I have Christian books on, in my home. Uh, we have opportunities to be educated. Even the poorest among us, even those that come to the caring place to get food, have Wally Blackman, a very qualified and able teacher, to come and to teach them God's Word. They have opportunities, but others around the world don't have those opportunities. We are responsible for not only what we, what we have, but for what we know. And I think, to me at least, that means that we need to live a life worthy of the light that has been shown us. Don't you agree? I think that we need to live a life that is worthy of what God has shown us and so that others can not only see Jesus when they read about him in God's word, but can see Jesus in us. And then finally, I would say that we are not only responsible for what we have and what we know, but we are responsible for who we tell. We are responsible for who we tell. Now, you, now automatically you say, well, well, yeah, you're a preacher. You went to seminary. Sure, you're supposed to tell. You're supposed to preach. Well, I agree. I understand that. I understand that, that Brother Wally can, can maybe deliver a more, a more uh, clear message, perhaps. But all of us can give our testimony. All of us can tell what has happened to us. You know, Ezekiel wrote about that. In his book, in Ezekiel 33, you can jot the verses down and read them at home, verses 1 through 6. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, the blood, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. And then Ezekiel said, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians in the book of Acts. He said, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You see, we are responsible for what we know, for what we have. And for who we tell. We need to go this Christmas season and tell somebody what God has done for me. Just tell them in your own words. You don't have to prepare a sermon. You don't have to, you don't have to know any Greek or Hebrew. You don't have to do any of those things. Just go and tell somebody, perhaps in your family, maybe a neighbor, somebody you know, somebody that, that shows the signs of being lost. Go and tell them what you know, who you know. Go and, and say, this is a day of good news, and I want to tell you the good news. I refuse to remain silent. I love 
to come and visit churches. And Alice and I are privileged almost every Sunday of the year to visit a different church in our association. And, and I always come, and because we're visitors, we're new. You know, even if we've been there last year, we're still fairly new. And everybody's always smiling and oh so happy. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's an uplifting thing to come to church. Isn't, isn't that right? To be around people who are like-minded, who are happy, and who are smiling, and, and who have a, 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 a nice word for you, a word of comfort, a word of cheer. But I want us to think about that even as we sit in this warm place today, that around the world in places like China, even places like Venezuela, where the gospel has been preached for centuries, but in places like China, there are people who still haven't heard. It was not all that unusual for us to go to the remote places that we went in China, to some village, and, and to, to say, I want to tell you, I want to tell you a story uh, and about Jesus. Yesu is how you say Jesus in Chinese. And, and they would say something like, well, I don't know who Jesus is. Where does he live? You see, we can go and tell them. My dream is that one day when we get to heaven, and I believe this is going to be a dream that's going to come true, that I'll get to see not only the smiling faces of my American brothers and sisters, but of Chinese brothers and sisters who are smiling because they were once lepers outside the city, but they, they found good news. And they found that good news because somebody who had found it before them came and told them. So I want you to imagine, I'll finish with this, just imagine those who are still outside the gate and imagine that these words that I'm going to read, they're saying to you and to me, come and show us what it is that gives your face its smile. Come and tell us who it is that walks with you each mile. We live in fear of unseen things that scare us in the night. Our children run from unknown beings that chase them full of fright. But you have something we don't have. You know someone we don't. And you could come and tell us too. And yet somehow you won't. It costs too much. I have not time. I'm busy, so you say. While we live hopeless, aimless lives for yet another day. You have the words we need to hear. You know the one we need. Why won't you come? Why don't you come? Why can't you hear us plead? You say you know someone who loves as no one else can love. But we have never heard his name, nor known who you speak of. And so we wait another day for him to love us too. And while you work and laugh and play, we still wait on you. Please come and show us who it is that gives your face its smile. While we wait in fear and dread and walk another mile. Brothers and sisters, as we celebrate Christmas, we know that the birth of the Savior is not the end of the story. Amen? There's more to it. Jesus didn't just come to lie in a manger. He came, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him. To seek and to save 
that which was lost, to give his ransom, his body, a ransom for many, to die on a cross. But he didn't just come to be born in a, in a manger and to die on a cross. He came to be raised from a grave. And when he left this earth, he gave us the promise, I come again. We have good news. Today is a day of good news. We all in this room have that good news. My challenge to you and to me this Christmas is go and tell somebody. Amen? I'm going to ask our pastor to come up, and we're going to sing a song of invitation to understand. You know, there may be someone here who's heard the good news, but you've just never responded to it. You don't have to stay outside the wall. Believe me, before those lepers went to the camp of the Syrians, the Lord had already set the table. It was already prepared for them. All they had to do was to go. All you need to do is to come and say, I want to give, say an everlasting yes to Jesus, and you can be saved. Brother Wally. Amen.